Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I couldn't help but uh, thinking through the singing this morning how much these songs reflect the text that we will look at today in Peter's epistle, reminding us of the holiness of our God, reminding us of the sacrifice of our Savior, reminding us that our lives are different today because of Jesus, reminding us that the greatest gift that we've ever received has been the Savior, reminding us that in this life we can do nothing without Christ. In this life, as we face its challenges, we are dependent on the ministry of the Spirit. We are dependent on the strength that only comes through Christ and and the wisdom that comes through His Word, and it's imperative on behalf of all of us that we learn in life's positive times and in life's worst of times to turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Also, I couldn't help but be amazed at God's work because every one of these songs is so critically important in the midst of the transition that our seniors find themselves in today. And although they're in this exciting time of transition and perhaps don't understand as much as life as we who have lived a few years on this earth longer than they, this is important counsel for those seniors to be reminded that the greatest gift that they have, the greatest resource that they have in the midst of this transition is life in Christ and to realize that uh, they are no match for the evil one and the evils of the day, but there's hope in Christ who equips us and gives us what we need to navigate the biggest challenges of life. And I pray that they would learn sooner rather than later in life that in life's most difficult times, the greatest help, the only help sometimes, is our Savior Jesus Christ, learning to turn our eyes on Him, and hoping and waiting and praying for that better day that Jesus comes and everything will be okay. In 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to take you back to verse 1 and read down through verse 11 where Peter writes, "'Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking.'" For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. 
Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to Him be glory and dominion forever and forever. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we continue to walk through this ever-changing world, as we continue to face the inevitable challenges of a world without God, a world without truth, a, a world in disarray, Father, I pray that You would show us and teach us how to live soberly and righteous in this present age, whatever that age might look like, by returning to the admonition that Peter gives the believers here in this text, beginning with their salvation, change of life and a change of heart that, that leads to a life lived in a different manner than the world, a different manner than the unbeliever, and a different way than those without God. I pray that as we look at this text, you would encourage all of us in the midst of this ever-changing world and with great grief, even an ever-changing church, that we would learn to do the things that we have sung about, to honor you in your holiness and to worship holy God, to cherish the greatest gift that we've received in Christ to understand that we can't do this without the help of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the gospel, the wisdom that comes from Christ, the Scripture. And I pray before it's too late, we would all learn to turn our eyes upon Jesus. The things that He's said in His Word, the things entrusted to us through the inspiration of Scripture and that somehow it would make its way down to the way we live our lives. For there's grave disconnect at times in your people between what we say we believe and how we live our lives. May there be a reducing of that gap, an acknowledgement that we will never be perfect, but as you draw us closer to you, may our lives resemble the things that we proclaim, the things that we teach the things that we champion. And as we live that life in a declining, godless culture, may we stand out as salt and light because of what Christ has done for us. Encourage us and bless us as we face the challenges of today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For some time now, in the world at large, and unfortunately, even in the church of Jesus Christ in recent years, there's come this challenge to faith that we will see as an historic challenge that goes back even to the times of the Scripture. And yet in our social media age where we are bombarded with information on a regular basis, if not minute by minute, second by second, the challenges of this day are greater the tendency to buy into the notions of the world becomes so politically seated and rooted and the pressure's so great to conform that it's a difficult thing for these teenagers to stand in opposition to that. 
No less difficult than we as adults, but when we have some seasoning, when we've been through some hard times, when we understand what life really is, we are better equipped for it. But in the midst of all of this world, there's a a deconstruction that has taken place, particularly in my lifetime, as I watch these these kids who graduate high school and move on to to higher education, closing their hearts to God and, and walking away from the faith handed down and delivered from the saints. And it grieves me. And then at the same time, there's a necessary process that these teenagers must go through in owning this this faith for themselves, no longer relying on the faith of their parents, but, but as they're working through these difficult challenges in life, owning it for themselves, making it real in their own lives. But we know that that is a precarious journey, and we're losing too many of them. Perhaps it's because of uh, very complicated and multifaceted reasons, but it doesn't stop the reality that many are walking away from the faith. We hear this thing called deconstructionism, which is really a challenge. It even goes back to the Enlightenment and prior to that, where where people look at the Christian faith and begin to doubt the veracity of miracles, and they begin to challenge the resurrection of Christ, and they begin to say, it really couldn't be that way, and they start to uh, reconstruct the Bible in their own way, to understand the Bible in their own way, and make the Bible fit their lives and let a instead of fitting their lives to the Scripture. And that's exactly what's happening in this generation today, and the very challenges that are going to be faced by these high schoolers as they move into either higher education or the world. Deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you grew up with. Every teenager goes through this time in which they begin to to have to own the faith for themselves. And in order to do that, they're they're challenged from the outside, and they're thinking through and dissecting the things that they have been taught in their lives and making decisions concerning those things. Alyssa Childer says, sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. We've heard these deconversion stories of Josh Harris and, and uh, Christian contemporary musicians and others who have somehow deconverted from the faith. There is no such thing. For those who are converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are held in the palm of the Father's hand, and nothing can pluck you from that Father's hand. Perhaps their faith was an intellectual faith only, and that's the grave tragedy. They must own it for themselves, not just in their minds, but in the way that they live. Some remain in their atheism as childers' rights, but others experience a reconstruction, the possibility of, of thinking through this and owning it for yourself. The type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christian Christianity they formerly knew. Seniors, you are headed into a stage of your life where you will face in the world and through social media, and through every endeavor that that happens from this point forward, an attempt to deconstruct your faith, to undermine it, to change it, and to to bend it in this malleable kind of way to, to the way that the world wants it to be. And you must resist that. You must stand firm in the midst of all of that. And you must ask and answer some very important questions 
as you make this your own. Is Christianity true? Is there a truthfulness, a veracity to the Christian faith? Is it, is it real? Does it, does it work? Most importantly, is it mine? One of the greatest challenges of Christianity that these kids will face is the question, is Christianity good? And you'll hear stories about the atrocities committed by Christians through the ages. You'll hear stories about Christianity's being bigoted and closed-minded and full of hate. You'll be challenged with this question, is Christianity truly good? Make no mistake, there are tragic periods of time in the history of the church. There are tragic things that happen to God's people. There are tragedies and, and, and sinfulness, even in church experiences where people are wounded and their relationships with other Christians. But, but you can't answer the question, is Christianity good based on stories and personal experience? You must look at Christianity and see its goodness contained in its, in its teachings and the historic emphasis of the gospel. And I want you to know that in spite of everything that you hear seniors in higher education, in spite of everything that you hear even in the workplace today, Christianity has been a force for good from the very beginning. No matter what they try and tell you, and no matter how much they wish to twist that, Christianity is a good thing. In fact, it's a great thing, and it's the only thing that gets us through the dilemmas and the problems and the challenges of life. It's the only worldview that answers the deepest questions of life. Those who have cut out God and deconverted, those who have deconstructed their faith, those who have walked away from the truth have no answers any longer for the deepest questions in life and are left empty. And life is lived for today, and that is not a life that brings any kind of, of quietness or peace in tumultuous times. But I want you to know none of this is new. The things that you will face, generations have faced all the way back to the beginning. Should I remind you of Demas in 2 Timothy 4, who loved this world more than he loved the Savior and departed from the faith, deconverted if you would? How about Hymenaeus and Alexander that, that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy chapter 1? He speaks of the same Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Even in the context of the Scripture, there are those who followed Christianity for some time and then gave up on it and somehow deconverted in the deconstruction of their faith. There are others. We won't spend the time there. But I want you to know, seniors, that you're in a precarious time in your life, but an exciting time too. As you ask these questions, is Christianity true and is it good? As you wrestle with the faith, I want you to know that asking questions is not a bad thing. Perhaps you've been taught that. Perhaps you've been taught even by inference that you shouldn't challenge anything. Here's what I'm here to tell you. Challenge away because Christianity in its truest form can meet every challenge and every question that you have of it. There are answers. They are found in the person of Jesus Christ. They are contained in the pages of the Scripture, and truth and goodness prevail no matter how much you examine 
and wrestle and question your faith. I believe that in some ways, this is a necessary phase of time in your life, but I don't want you to deconstruct your faith and to begin to doubt. I want you to deenculturate your faith. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Your faith cannot be based on the culture that you were raised in. It must become personal to you. You can't rely on your church. You can't rely on your parents. You can't rely on anything else. Do you really believe what you believe is really real? Now, that's a precarious time in life, but it's an exciting time of life because here's what I'm going to remind you of. The truth can and will set you free, and you shall be free indeed. The world wants to take you in bondage and deconstruct your faith and and challenge you. And I believe that as you go through this, you become more mature in the faith with a robust faith that can, can honestly tackle anything that happens. And I apologize in some ways for the shallowness of the church and our approach to Christianity. And this notion, believe it or leave it, don't ask any questions because We all have questions, don't we? I'm going to spend the summer with the teenagers upstairs during ABF to begin to address some of these challenges and the answers that come from the Scripture. I want to encourage and, in fact, invite these graduating seniors. I know that you're entering a different phase of life, but if you want to come up on Sunday morning, I'd love to have you. I'd love to prepare you for the challenges you're going to face in the next phase of your life as you you make this faith your own. And I encourage you to bring any question and doubt that you have, and with confidence we're going to address it through the pages of the Scripture. We're going to give you the answers that you desperately are searching for, and even more, equip you with an answer to give to any man who asks the reason of the hope that is in you. The Bible says that God Himself, His divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness to the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, that through them you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I'm here to tell you that deconstruction stories and deconstruction experiences are even addressed by Jesus Himself, and every time the Bible addresses the challenges of life, it always turns us back to the Scripture. There has never been an individual revival, and there has never been a worldwide revival without God's people turning back to the book. You cannot turn your back on the book. It is where He has given us these great and precious promises. It's where He is equipping us to deal with the challenges of the day. And He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. But you are entering into a world that is different than the world that your parents entered into in their graduation, and far different than the world that your grandparents entered after their education. Daryl Bach says, culturally, as we have already noted, we have shifted away from a personal knowledge of Scripture. It used to be that you could share the gospel and confidently assume that the people you were sharing with would have at least some basic knowledge of scriptural teachings. But today we're encountering more and more people who know very little about the Bible at all. It's a direct result, the end of the removal of the Judeo-Christian worldview from Western civilization 
And although in times past, even though someone didn't darken the door of the church, they would at least understand the basic stories of creation, the teachings of the Scripture on its most simplest form, but we don't live in that kind of world any longer. I like to say that the world no longer is haunted by a Judeo-Christian worldview and biblical morality. Sometimes the only thing people know about biblical Christianity is what they're told on social media. And young people, I want you to know that's a terrible source for truth, a terrible source for truth. Unless we make you martyrs and victims, I want to remind you that the fight that you will fight isn't a new and fresh fight. Even in the second century, one of the Christian philosophers wrote, we are want and and able to convince only the foolish and dishonorable, the stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. In other words, Christianity is only for the unthinking. Christianity doesn't make sense. And as they deconstruct that Christianity, they convince you that it's some wishful kind of religion. And I'm here to tell you that is absolutely wrong. And I call you to fight the good fight. I'm reminded of what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. And where the rubber hits the road, I remind you the words of Trevon Wax, to claim a Christian identity while holding non-Christian beliefs would be intellectually dishonest both for you and other Christians. You are called to make a decision. Some of you are scared by that. You say, well, they made a decision a long time ago. Well, this is how we know whether or not that decision was real, how they handled the challenges, deconstruction, the undermining of their faith and the forces that are so prevalent in ways that we never even imagined back in the day. But let's be perfectly clear. I am tired of Christians who claim Christianity but reject the truths of the Scripture. You can't be that person. You are either a Christian or you're not. And you can't pick and choose in the Christian faith. It's either all true or none of it's true, and I'm here to tell you it's all true. It's all true. So here's what Peter says to those who are believers. Here's what Peter says to to those who are facing persecution. Here's what Peter says for those who are changing from the former passions to the way God has called them to live their life. Here's what Peter says when he says there's a time of judgment coming where, where everyone will give an account. He says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. He's not talking about cessation or termination. He's talking about the consummation of the age. He's talking about the fullness of your life. He is talking about the return of our Savior because He's not talking about the end of your life or my life. He is talking about the end of all things, the consummation of all things, the culmination of God's plan for the universe and the ethical implications of what we believe is soon to come, our eschatology. If Jesus indeed is coming again and that time is imminent and at hand, there are ethical implications to that. In other words, lifestyle implications. It changes how you live. He's not promising them the end of persecution. 
He's not talking solely about the end of their lives per se. He is saying the end of all things is at hand. So in light of that, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled. Of sound judgment. Not carried away by every wind of doctrine willing to examine the things that you are told from this point forward in your life, holding them up to the things that you know to be true, and and discerning the times, discerning the teachings, guarding your mind, and even guarding your mind from your whimsical emotions. We've learned to live our lives, even as Christians, in an emotive kind of capacity. We come to church and we say, I got nothing out of it. Well, here's my question. What did you put into it? We're not here to entertain you. We're not, we're not here to make you feel better. We're here to take you to the truth, and it's the truth that sets you free. And you shall be free indeed. I don't care what you feel today. Is it true or isn't it? That is what we wrestle with. We either accept the truth of Scripture or we reject it. And Peter is saying, listen, in the midst of your persecution, as time wanes down, as the culmination of all things starts to come, as you change from what you once were to what you need to be, you need to know that you must be self-controlled. You must guard your minds. And your minds must flesh out in a sober-minded kind of way. You must be spiritually observant. You need to be on alert. You need to be watching for your souls spiritually, your, your health and well-being. And both of those words take us not just to some intellectual ascent, but to an embrace of truth that changes how we live. Godliness is not measured by the things that you believe only. It's not measured by the things that you observe only. But it is measured by what you believe and how it impacts the way that you live. You can't live as the world and claim the name of Jesus. And when you do that, seniors especially, but all of us, the challenges are going to be great. You're going to be mocked, and you're going to be called names. You're going to say you're crazy, and, and you're foolish, and you're simpletons, and be self-controlled, and be sober-minded, and live soberly and righteous in this age, godly lives. And then he says, for the sake of your prayers. He said earlier in the text that the husband and wife relationship isn't what it was supposed to be. Your prayers would be hindered. There's a lot of things that hinder our prayers. The Christians who, who live like the Word wonder why God doesn't answer prayer. Well, you can't have it both ways. There are a lot of things that, that hinder our prayers, and let's be sure, prayer is one of our greatest defenses against this world and the challenges to the mind and the truth that we all experience. It is the access to spiritual resources, the, the resources we don't have in ourselves, the resources that we were reminded of this morning when we sang, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I'm reminded of Second Timothy, particularly in light of this end being at hand, where Paul writes, but understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. People will be lovers or self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That is not a pretty picture, and Paul's counsel was avoid such people. Now listen carefully, you can't avoid them, they're everywhere. Because you can't avoid them, you must be self-controlled and sober-minded. Let's look at them as living souls lost in their sin. You must decipher what they're saying in contrast to the truth of the Scripture and the things that you know to be true. And you must embrace the faith holistically, and you will not do that perfectly. Neither did your parents. Neither did your parents. As we pray for strength in the midst of this alarming description of the world, make no mistake, the end of all things is at hand. Things are coming to a culmination, and I expect to hear the sound of a trumpet. As we pray, live self-controlled and sober-minded, we're reminded in verse 8, above all, of utmost and supreme importance, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The controlling factor in all relationships ought to be love. And when he talks about earnestly loving one another, he's talking about straining, doing it even when there's a price and a cost. Do it fervently. He's not talking about a sentimental kind of love. He's talking about a sacrificial love. He's talking about loving eagerly and loving deeply. And in the context, he's talking about God's people. There must be a love for God's people. If there's one thing that even our government is involved in is driving a wedge between people groups today. Seems like they're bent on dividing all of us. And that happens in the church too. So in the declining, waning days, we're called to, to keep loving one another earnestly. Don't let that divide take place. Love each other deeply. And when he speaks of that kind of love, he is talking about an agape kind of love, a volitional love of choice, and even most importantly, a self-sacrificing love in a me-first culture. He is calling you to live counterculturally, and a love for the brethren. But I also think there needs to be a love for the unbeliever as well created in the image of God, filled with intrinsic worth, value, and dignity, a living, breathing person with an eternal soul. As we love them and reach out to them and minister to them, like the early disciples, they know that we're Christians because of our love toward one another and them. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. There's been much written about that statement. It can be traced back even to Proverbs 10:12. Was Peter quoting that? Was he drawing our attention back to that? Uh, Proverbs teaches us that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Perhaps he's speaking to Christ, and the love of Christ through, through salvation in Christ alone covers a multitude of sins. Perhaps he's speaking to us. 
looking beyond the faults and failures and sins of others, but He is never calling us to turn a blind eye to sin. He is calling us to move beyond our sin and an act of the will. In fact, I believe that He's calling us to, as described in verse 3, that in the time past you did what the Gentiles do, but now you're living differently. You're gaining victory. You're beating the challenges, and the love of Christ is covering a multitude of sins as you turn from them to righteousness. But whatever Peter talks about, it's kind of a general term there, and I think there's a danger of becoming too specific. But there is a call to love and to love earnestly. What does that look like? He says in verse 9, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling, to love and to display that hospitality, particularly important in the early centuries of the church. There wasn't a Motel 8. There, there, there wasn't a place where you could travel and, and have a place to say that the body of Christ was dependent on each other uh, for housing and for sustenance. And as the body gathered together, even, even in church on Sunday, they would minister to one another's knees. He says, you need to be doing that. You need to show hospitality to one another. And uh, I do believe there's a, a component of even loving of strangers and unbelievers, and he says, do it without grumbling. Here's how I see that working out. My, my children grew up in a home where I drove them crazy. It's like I do you sometimes, right? And they would hear all the time in their growing years, do the right thing. They're probably haunted by that. As they came of age and went through these transitions, like some of these seniors, I taught them how to do the right thing for the right reasons. I connected the truth of Scripture to the way that we live our lives. And I said, this is what you need to do, but this is why you need to do it. And it, and it set the table and gave them the opportunity to accept and reject that. Seniors, you enter time now that I still call upon you to do the right thing, but I want you to do it for the right reasons. And you can't know those reasons without getting into the book. And you can't do that without showing hospitality, without grumbling. And you can't do that by being self-serving, but by serving others. Look at what he says in the next verse. As each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and forever. Post, excuse me, Peter speaking in generalities. This isn't a, a treatise on spiritual gifts and the source of those gifts and the exercise of those gifts. He doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit here, but, but we would know that each person is given and endowed by the Holy Spirit of God a spiritual gift, if you would. And those spiritual gifts are not for you and your enhancement. Those spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit are used for this body of Christ. They are to be used in service one toward another. This service to each other flies in the face of this me-first kind of culture. And that's why this admonition is so important even today. So take your spiritual giftedness, and another time we'll get into what that is, and serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
when He says to be good stewards uh, as those who are given charge to manage the gifts that, that you've been given. Do it wisely in obedience as you minister to other people and recognize that God's grace is varied. We don't have all the same gifts and abilities. You don't have to be somebody else. You have to be what God has created you to be. That starts most simply male or female. But it's complexity, personality, and giftedness factor in there that, that teach us to look outward towards others and not inward toward self. And as he talks about being managers of that grace, he gives us a quick idea of what that looks like. If you're given the ability and gift to speak, speak the oracles of God. This is really important. It's lost on many today. My attention before you needs to be driving your attention to the book. When I speak, I don't speak the oracles. The oracles of God are spoken when I turn you to the book, and we talk about what God has said. Our pulpits are being overtaken by people who want to talk about themselves and tell a bunch of stories and give a bunch of antidotes, and that is not the oracles of God. You want to know what God says? Let me read it to you. We have to speak about truth. I will never stop saying, take your Bibles, please, because if I stop saying that, I've got nothing to say. My giftedness is the oracles of God. You teacher. How about in your discipleship? How about when you train your children, the oracles of God? Get back to the book. Whoever serves is one who serves the strength that God supplies in whatever capacity, serving in big ways and in small ways. We're reminded of this by Paul in 1 Corinthians. We won't take the time to look at that, but you're not to envy somebody else's gift. You're to recognize yours and to use it for its fullest. You're not to say, I'm not as important as so-and-so because we're all important, placed in this body with certain giftedness. And if you're not using your gift, there's something missing in your life. I challenge you to get involved and do something. Serve, if you're called to serve. Teach, if God gives you that gift of teaching. May it all be about the oracles, but may we serve one another and not ourselves again. If you're coming only for what you might get. You have a wrong understanding of why we gather on Sunday. We gather to serve each other through hospitality and through love, without grumbling, and using our giftedness in service through the strength that God supplies, how critically important that is. I think there's been twice in my whole life that I've listened to a sermon that I preached. I know how bored you are sometimes, right, when I listen to it. <laughs> you know why I don't listen? Because it's done. There's nothing I can do about it. And if I did my homework and I preached the Word, I must trust the Spirit of God to do what the Spirit of God can do, and there's nothing I can do to change it now. And Sunday's coming. I need to get ready for the next time that I stand before you with the oracles of God. You know what is so great and amazing to me? It's when people come up and tell me what God has taught them through the message, and what I don't say, and maybe I should more often, gee, I didn't get that at all. 
That's the beauty of preaching the oracles of God. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what you need, and He teaches you through the truth. That's why we can't tell stories and talk about ourselves. We, we got to tell the truth, and the truth will set you free, and you shall be free indeed. In order, in light of, through the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God might be glorified through Christ Jesus. There's been some long debate. Is, is it glorifying God or is it glorifying Jesus? Let me be simple to you. Both. Both. Certainly we glorify God by living right, but we glorify our Savior by serving in the body because it's His body. This notion that it's your church is a false notion, that it's Christ's church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So whatever we do in everything, may God be glorified through Christ Jesus because we couldn't do it without Him anyhow because we serve with the strength that God supplies. May Him and Him alone be glorified through Christ Jesus. To Him belong glory and dominion, even in our own lives, that lordship of Jesus exercised forever and forever, for ages and ages to come. Amen. So be it. In essence, in a very brief way, as he winds his sections and begins to, to shift to the conclusion of the letter, through this benediction reminds these people in the midst of persecution what it means to be faithful, and calls them in everything to glorify God through Christ Jesus. Succinctly, Paul, as he writes to the church of Corinth, says, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There was a saying, a title that came out of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, he reminds us in the first verse of, of chapter 1 of the suffering of Christ, the foundation of your salvation. He reminds us that we've been saved and are being changed through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to live differently than the world, and that we'll all sometime and someday give an account of the way that we live, and that time is now, the time is at hand. And he calls us because of the shortness of the day, to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded, to keep loving one another, to show hospitality, to use our gifts in ministry and service to each other, and to do whatever it is we do for the glory of God alone. How fitting throughout this text that we have used this Reformation phrase, Coram Deo, before the face of God, for the time is at hand, and everyone shall give an account. May God find us faithful as the stewards of His grace, living soberly and righteous in this age, and, and living out our faith for His glory. May God find us faithful till we hear the sound of the trumpet and stand before Him. Father, bless us, encourage us, enable us, and equip us to do these things called in this text. in service to each other for the glory of God, in anticipation of the day that you come again. And we, and we pray even so, come Lord Jesus indeed. Accept our prayers, find us faithful. 
prepare us for the sound of the trumpet in Jesus' name. Amen.